Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. We have been talking about the church, our church in particular, and we've been talking about the global church, and there's a lot of good things I hope we have seen and been a part of seeing them and rejoicing in them, but there's a lot of brokenness, and it seems like just about every other week, I don't know about you, but in my circles of spheres and stratospheres of of news and information, it seems like there's another scandal, there's another brokenness, there's another broken promise, there's another something that's out there. It's like, man, when are we going to get past this? And it's just broken, broken, broken. And and I want to look to the church and say, come on, and there is a beauty and a beast factor of the church. There's sometimes we're like, acting like the beast, and there's sometimes we're acting like the beauty. And I want to elevate the beauty. I want to amplify the beauty. I want to see how we can be a more beautiful church, bringing out the glory of God through us and through our lives and through our conduct. But I also want to diminish. I also not want to whitewash over, but I want to deal with and push, uh, get away from and repent of the brokenness and the, uh, of our own churches. And I don't want to masquerade over it. I point back to a 19th century British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said this. He says, appear to be what thou art. Tear off thy mask. The church has never, was never meant to appear as a masquerade. Stand out in your, thy true colors. Now, I want our true colors to be beautiful. I want them not to be some smudgy, smeared color of brokenness. I want it to be beautiful, but I certainly don't want to masquerade around and pretend to be something that we're not. Now, how can we amplify the beauty? How can we do that? And one of those ways that we can do that as a church is to care for, love one another. I mean, you're going to hear me say this in a moment. That's the most often repeated one another in all the Bible. Jesus uses it. John uses it. Matthew and Paul Paul uses it. Just about every major patriarch in the Christian faith use the challenge to love one another. We'll get there in a moment. But the whole loving one another is about serving one another. It's always an action, okay? Love is kind. Love is patient. There's always an action involved. It's not a feeling. We've been talking about serving matters, and you've got a booths out there that hopefully you took time last week, stopped at, visited with the, the different ministry leaders, and learning about ways that, yes, you can step into space Step into some opportunities and exercise the giftings and the callings that you have. And we want to help that happen, okay? We want to help equip you for ministry because here's why. Serving matters because we are saved to serve. We talked about that last week. The best life that God has for us doesn't begin and end with us. It ends with us doing good works of serving those around us. Okay, and we talked about this last week, and I failed to put another very important number up there, and that is the positions that we have for just the next generation. Forget what we have going on in the adults. Forget, I'm not saying it's not important. Just think about the next generation. And these are the positions that we have open that we need people to say, you know what, I can step up in that space. I don't know what I'm doing, but help train me, help get me there, and I will be a faithful servant. But accessibility is an incredible ministry that we have that is serving some of you guys, and it's a way that you can be a part and make a difference in the next generation. So serving matters because we are saved to serve, but also serving matters because people need people. Now, I know that we like to live like little independents. 
Like we can do it ourselves. We don't need others. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of mentality. But in reality, we need one another. We were made in God's perfect order to be with one another. In fact, he even said, God said in in Genesis 1 and 2, he said, listen, it's not good that man be alone. That's not just marriage. That is in relationship, in community, interdependent on one another. We talk about people needing people. We got artificial intelligence out there today that is the rave. Everything's about artificial intelligence. How can we get computers to do more of our living for us, more of our identifying, more of our, our, our com- communicating? And, and artificial intelligence is one thing, but I, that AI is one thing, but there's also EQ, and there's the, the emotional intelligence that we need. Our artificial intelligence can operate at a nanosecond and give you data points about different things and tell you whether or not it's your face that's opening up the phone whether or not you're voice texting correct messages into your voice text. It, it, it's get different data points that give you that, uh, that freedom to communicate, okay? But it doesn't reach an emotional level. That requires emotional EQ. That an EQ about us that goes deeper, it may be slower, but it's able to discern between what you said and what you didn't say that you meant to say or what you said when you didn't say what you didn't say or however you want to uh, untwine that. Um, it's, 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 it's able to look inside your soul in the core of who you are whenever you need something and you're not saying something. That is what happens when people realize, I need people. People need people. Now, where is the best place? Not the only place, but where's the best place to find that kind of people needing people, people fully interdependent, not codependent, where I can't live without you. No, no, no. Interdependent, where I am fully alive, fully present, and I'm giving my fullness to the, to, to the relationship. You're giving your fullness to the relationship. We're not talking about codependency, interdependency. Uh, how do we, where, where do we find that? I think there's no better place than in the family and in the church of God. He created it for us, for community. And then he gave us good, healthy guidelines for that. 55 different times. If you have not seen these, email me. I'll send you the list. 55 different times in the New Testament, he tells us one another, one another, one another. What we should do with one another. Well, here's here's a few of them. Be at peace with one another. What, what if that's the, the mindset that we entered into every relationship? I'm going to do everything I can to be at peace with you. Peace with one another. Very important, very, uh, very valuable. I already said this, love one another. It's the most often repeated of all of them. Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, all of them refer and call us to love one another. Here's one. Be devoted to one another. And in that same verse, it says, honor one another. So this is when the church is beautiful, is whenever we are devoted. And when I say devoted, that means I'm committed to this relationship. I'm not just going to bounce whenever I don't like something. I'm not just going to bounce because you didn't go my way or do it my way. I'm devoted to this. And not only am I devoted to this, but I'm actually going to honor this. I'm going to honor you. You're going to honor me. There's a valuable add there, that this world doesn't offer us out there very much at all. People tend to bolt from, from when, they don't, when they don't get it their way or you don't agree with their ideology. Well, not in the church. We're devoted. We're honoring one another. Here's another one, serving one another. 
Serving matters because people need people, because people realize that we need to serve one another. When we, when we don our aprons and we wash the, the disciples' feet, Jesus did. There's a beauty in that. There's a humility in that. And whenever I take my life, my schedule, my everything else, and I go, you know what? I'm going to put that to the side, and I'm going to serve you. Where's the need? I'm just going to give, give myself, make myself available. The beauty of the church begins to come through. The beautiful, imperfect church that we are is called out community on a mission with God. We are called out community on a mission with God. I've given you these quick one another's. This is just all lead in. Here's my favorite, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at this one. The first, first words are, let us. So he's literally calling us to do this. What is he calling us to do? Consider how you can stir up one another. And then notice the last one, how you can encourage one another. So literally, in the midst of all of this, how do we stir up one another to what? To love and good works. We talked about good works last week. How can I stir up? How can I encourage? So literally, there are times as the church body that we're going to have to stir some people up from apathy, from complacency, from stagnation, from, from being just lukewarm. There's a time that you need to be stirred. There are some times that you need to be encouraged. The church is here to stir you at times and to encourage you at times, to hold your hand at times or to push you at times, to exhort you at times or to rebuke you as Titus was told in chapter 2, verse 15. So we are called literally to live in this relationship, this tension of honoring and being devoted and stirring and encouraging. This is a part of a beautiful imperfect church. Take your Bibles and let's go to the last book that Paul wrote. Of 13 letters that he writes, this is the last. Chapter, or 2 Timothy. And in this chapter, I want to come here because there's so much more I would love to say, but we're ending the series today. I want to say so much more, but I want to give you kind of what, what would be Paul's final words? I mean, literally, it's believed that he's probably under arrest. Nero has had him arrested as one of the many Christians that have been arrested because he burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians and on the Jews. And so what they're going to do is they're going to gather up as many Christians as we gather them up. And whether they take him to the Colosseum and cut off their heads or they burn him at the stake or however torturous way, Nero's going to have them killed, but he's going to have them killed. And it's believed that Paul is in that mass herd of, uh, of, of people arrested for being a Christian. Literally, for being a Christian. So he's literally believing, because you can read in his words, especially in the last chapter, where he knows his days are numbered. He's wanting to go to Spain, but will he make it to Spain? Did he ever make it to Spain? We don't know. But he's in Rome right now, and he's writing his last of 13 letters. So this is literally his last words. And he's writing to this young pastor, Timothy, who's a minority pastor because he's biracial. He had a absentee Jewish uh, Greek father, and a, uh, but was raised by his Jewish mother and grandmother. And as he was raised up in that home, Paul steps into his life, begins to mentor him. Paul becomes an incredibly important figure in Timothy's upbringing. He gives him the, leads him to the church of Ephesus to pastor the church. And as he pastors this, this church, he now is pastoring as a minority in the sense of a minority situation. Because he's in Ephesus. Ephesus is not known for its Christianity. 
Ephesus is known for its temple of Artemis, one of the ancient wonders of the world. I mean, it was the, in fact, one secular uh, uh, historian that I read from this past week said, it was impossible to think of Ephesus and not think of Artemis. It, they were one and the same. It's impossible to think of Bentonville, Arkansas and not think of Walmart, okay? It's impossible to think of Ephesus and not think of Artemis. That's how closely they're tied together. And so here's this little ragtag group of Christians over here, and Paul is telling Timothy how to pastor them, how to pastor this small church and minority status. So as he's telling him this, I think what I see in this passage is a real love that Paul has for the church, a real value that he sees in the church, and he's giving his last words to Timothy to how to lead the church. So let this be the last message in this series but let it be the last words of Paul to us today to really understand the value of belonging. And I'm not just talking about attending, belonging. I'm not just talking about consuming. I'm talking about contributing and belonging. I'm talking about when this becomes a part of your family and you don't just dial it up. This is not just a job. This is not just a duty. This is your life. This is your family. And you get connected and you stay connected. You're devoted and you're honoring one another all the way through. So three advantages real quickly. Number one is my church calls me, hopefully your church calls you, if you're not a part of this church, calls you to a mission that's bigger than you. It doesn't, again, I said it last week, our life doesn't begin and end with us. The best life doesn't begin and end with us. But literally God is going to call us to a higher, nobler life of making a bigger impact than just taking care of ourselves. I want you to hear this because it's throughout the New Testament. But every single one of us is called to be a disciple who makes a disciple. Be a disciple. Take the faith that's given to you, however big, however, however, however massive it is, or however small it might be. Take the faith that is given to you and pass it down to the next generation. The Great Commission is not a Great Commission to make converts, to make just new believers. It is a calling to make disciples. And when you look at this passage, I want you to see what has been called, and I love it, the 2-2-2 principle. Because it's 2-2-2, it's because it is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. So look there with me. It says this, And what you have heard from me. So Paul passes down his faith to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust. Hang on to that word in trust. In fact, circle that word if you're one of those who marks in their Bible like me. In trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now notice in this one verse, there are four generations of the faith. Paul tells Timothy. Timothy is to pass it on to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. In one verse, he's telling us this is something. Listen, I I know we think of disciple, disciple making. That's for the seminary trained. That's for the religious elite. That's for those who are like Sunday school teachers and have got all the knowledge. No, no, no. Take the modicum of faith that you have and pass it down 
to the next generation. And then what? You go back that next week and you learn some more and you pass it down. And you go back the next day, you learn some more and you pass it down. And it could be day over day. It could be week over week. It could be month over month. It could be however much time you have and however much God has given to you. You take what you have been given and you pass it down to someone else. Who will be entrusted with that to pass it down to someone else? Who will be entrusted with that to pass it down to someone else? This is not a pyramid scheme. This is God's plan for making disciples. That where we as a church would understand every single one of us in this room, every one of us listening online, nothing that I have received in my faith is to be kept for myself. Everything that I've received must be passed down to others. Now, I must ask the question, who is my other? Who am I passing it down to? Formally or informally? Take one of those open positions that we talked about earlier and you can pass it down there. Take somebody and mentor them and walk beside them. I have a family, a young single grandmother in this church right now who's hungering for men to come walk beside her two teenage boys that she's raising. I just, I just need somebody to teach them how to be a godly man. I'm a grandmother. I'm not, I'm not a man. I just need somebody to do that. And that's the, that's the true of every, every ministry opportunity that we have is it's somebody's life. And if we could take our faith, however big or small, and pass it down to the next. And what if we really own that as a church? I agree with David Platt as he pastors in the D.C. area. He said this about his church. I want to shepherd this church in such a way that God could pick up any member from this church, put them anywhere else in the world. Now, that's broadening your scope. And that they would know how and have confidence to make disciples together with them into, as a church with only the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We didn't need a Lifeway Bible study. We didn't need David Jeremiah's latest book. We didn't need anybody else's books and materials. We just needed this book, the Holy Spirit, and that we've been trained up enough. And so that's a question for us as a church. How well are we doing that? If God will reach in and take you from this world to another part of this world, could you go in? Would you go in? Would you have the confidence? I pray to God that we will make disciples of such where there's an anticipation and there's an expectation that every disciple makes disciples. Think about it. Because whenever we say week over week, live sent, as just a, a point of application, live sent. That's not just some meaningless statement. It means that just me showing and sharing in everyday conversations with everyday people who Jesus is and how they can be in relationship with him, how they can grow in their relationship with him. Living sent is a part of what we're called to do. Take the faith that's been given to you and give it and pass it on. I want to be a part of a church. I hope you want to be a part of a church that has a mission that's bigger than you and it's calling you to be a part of it. Number two, is my church gives me relationships to sustain me. Life is incredibly hard. I want a church where the relationships are real and authentic, where there's environments, places, incubators, Petri dishes, where relationships can be birthed and formed and matured and grown and they can become 
something powerful and strong, and that they will be devoted to one another and that they will honor one another. They will live out the one another's. I want to be a part of that kind of church. When you look at the life of Jesus, you might think, well, Jesus, he he fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000, he calmed the waters, he brought big mounts of fish, and all Jesus' ministry was about big, 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 big. You realize when you look and you count up all the, all the conversations that Jesus had, there are 15 times in the gospel when Jesus speaks to the masses, to the crowds. But 40 times does he engage people one-on-one. The, this is a crowd, okay? But if this is all I do in my ministry, I'm only doing a small portion of what Jesus did. It's going to be in the one-on-one relationships that I'm going to have. It's going to be in the coffees and the lunches and the Bible studies that I'm going to have with people that is going to make the difference in me passing on my faith to the next. Germany's got this thing going on right now, and it's been going on for several years. I don't know if it's an experiment. I don't know if they just found that it works for them, but this is kind of how they've they've learned to do it. And uh, they have what's called Audubon churches. Now, the Audubon, if you know about the Audubon, you can go endless speeds on the Audubon, but they have 30 30 Audubon churches that are all located a half a mile off of an Audubon exit. And what you can do is you can pit stop into your Burger King, get you a burger, make it your way, and then you can go over to the church, the little chapel there, whatever that is, looks like a paper mache or something like that put together, but it's the Audubon church, and you can go in there and nobody's going to be there to bother you and you're going to say your little prayer and you're going to write, register in the note, and you can leave a little offering, and then you can get back on the Audubon, and you can just take off again. And I think that metaphorically is what we do in America. They literally do that there. We metaphorically do it here. We drive into our church. We pull in as fast as we can. We late, late, late as we can or whatever. Pull in here, sit down, take a little dose of Jesus or have it our way, kind of sandwiches at church, and then we kind of go out the door, and then we speed off into life. Listen, church was never meant to be a drive-by experience or a drive-through experience. We're called into relationships. Whenever you look at this passage and you see in, in, in 2 Timothy alone, there are 19 individual people named. Chapter 4 has most of them but they're out there throughout the book, but there are 19 relationships. I have to say, of the 19, four of them go bad. So not every relationship is going to be great. Even Jesus couldn't hang on to Judas, all right? So 19 of them, four of them will kind of go astray, but there are 15 healthy relationships of which he knows by name, they know him by name, and they're walking through life together. Let me point out just one of them. I'm going to try to say it. Onephoros, Onephoros. Nephoros. Look at 1 Timothy, verse 16. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onephoros. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, those two verses you might fly over and go right on. Just getting stuck on Onephoros would make you want to speed on. 
But I think what you have in here is a beautiful picture of a biblical friendship. And what Onephoros does with Paul alone, the great apostle, shows us what we can do and should do in our relationships with people. First of all, I want you to see that he pursues him. There is a a pursuit of him. What does it say in verse 17? But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, whenever you have a friend who pursues you, as Onephoros did for Paul, you have somebody that that you want to hang on to. Let me give it to you in the marriage form. Marriage couple, they go to the altar, they're pursuing one another, they're looking for one another, they're looking for times they can spend together, they're creating memories, they're pursuing one another, they're leaning in towards one another, they can't get enough of each other. That's a beautiful thing when you're pursuing one another. One of them starts stops pursuing, the other one stops pursuing, find yourself living in a stagnant marriage, you're not really going anywhere, not really feeling it anymore. What happened? The pursuit died. Well, you compound that into any other friendship, any other relationship, and it's not going to make it. But Onephorus pursues Paul. Number two, there's a refreshing element. I mean, this is literally what Paul said. He said that he refreshed me He refreshed me. I had to look that word up. I had to understand the etymology of that word because it's such a unique concept that Onephorus refreshed the apostle Paul. Yes. Homer uses this word. Josephus, historian, uses this word. It means to give life to someone at their very core and essence. So literally, Paul was in a relationship with Onephorus, a, a relationship where they're pursuing one another, a relationship where they're refreshing one another, bringing life to their very core and essence. So you pursue, then you refresh, but then also I want you to notice that there is this standing with element. They stood with each other. Even though Paul was in chains, it says in verse 16, even though Paul was in chains, what does he do? He stays with him. That's embarrassing to be wearing chains. You're, you're in prison. You've got a rap sheet. Somebody's got create all kinds of stories about you. Not for Onephorus. He stays with him. I'm just giving you a snapshot of a beautiful picture of one of 15 relationships that Paul points to as valuable relationships in his life. Now, here's what I want to challenge you. I can't promise you, if you're a part of Grace Point Church, that you will have that right there. But I promise you this. If you enter into your relationships with people in Grace Point Church and you are pursuing them, you are refreshing them, you are standing with them, you will find you're you're creating an environment where you can have an incredible relationship with one another. Because it's not just about the big meetings. It's about the relationships that happen. So here's what I want to do. Your next step could be your first step. I want to invite you. I want to invite every one of you who's not a part of our church, not been a part, been sitting out in the perimeters of our church. I want to invite you to be a part of our next first step experience. August twentieth. I'll just leave it there. You can check it all out online, or you can talk to me later at the um, at the um, welcome center, and I'll and I'll try to answer your questions. But here's another thing: if you're a part of our church, I challenge you to be a part of a group. Being a part of a group is where you can have those onephorous relationships 
where you're not just doing drive-by church, coming into the church doors and wondering, why am I not feeling connected? Why am I not feeling like I'm belonging? Why aren't people pursuing me? I had this tragedy happen in my life, and no one at the church even called me. Because you don't have a nefarious relationship with people inside the church. Reader's Digest had a story that years ago went out, and I clipped it and held on to it. The title of the story was, What Good is a Tree? And it talked about the root systems of a tree. And, and if you've planted trees, you know you plant it in the ground and you take care of the soil around the root system and make sure it's got the right nutrients when it's a seedling and you take care of it. But you don't know what happens under the surface. You're not watching it as the, as the winter seasons come and the roots continue to grow out. You just assume that all that's happening. But the beautiful thing about a root system in the trees is that whenever you have trees in a forest, you will have this tree that's out in an open field and it's getting the sunlight that it needs to live. And then you'll have this tree way over here that has the nutrients in the soil and it's pulling up the nutrients. And then you have this tree over here who's by the water. But what scientists have figured out, botanists have figured out, is that the root system connects all the way through. And the sunlight from that tree feeds the tree by the water. And the water from that tree feeds the tree by the, in the sunlight. And the nutrients is going out. And it's interconnected and it's interdependent. It's all happened below the surface. But it's creating this beautiful tree above. When we talk about a church, when we talk about a healthy church, when we talk about a church that's a beautiful church, amplifying the beauty is when we have Onesiphorus relationships and we are learning the value of loving people. Because that loving people is what we're going to be about. We're talking about living sin, yes, but that living sin flows out of a love for people. Which leads me to my third point. Third advantage of the church, hopefully you'll see it, hopefully you'll feel it, hopefully you will experience it, is that my church points me to Jesus. All right, listen, my friends, we can do a lot of good things. We can have a good band and we have a good sermon, a motivational kind of TED Talk. Some people compare the church today to a Coldplay concert followed by a TED Talk. I can have a good TED Talk and you can go out inspired. We can have a good, cool kids ministry over there and, and, and your kids can come home and talk about all the fun things that they did. And we can, have all, we can do good, but if we don't do what is best and what is great, and that is pointing people to Jesus, then our good becomes bad. We have got to point people to Jesus. People have got to have the kind of faith that Paul had that changes his life. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. He said this, Who saved us? Who called us to a holy calling? Not because of our works. We didn't earn it. God didn't choose us because, oh, you're better looking. Oh, you're good at this. I'm going to choose you so you can help my kingdom out. No, no, no. He saved us. He made us holy. Because of his own purpose and his grace, he gave us Christ Jesus before the ages began in which now has been manifested through the appearing of Savior, uh, uh, of our Savior Christ Jesus. Notice he's just pointing to Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel for which I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Paul's carrying three titles. Talk about the load that he's carrying, which I 
Now notice this. He gets very personal about his own testimony. I suffer, which I, which is why I suffer as I do. But I, it's like he's driving a hammer into the ground. Every time he says I, I suffer, I do. I am not ashamed. Every time you see the I, just think about a hammer. For I know what I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which he's been entrusted to me. It all is leading up to that, that concept of entrusted. The word entrusted there means to make a deposit of something that is of incredible value. Something that is something that you can't just create, something that you don't, you don't have on your own. This is a common word that Paul will use because he's going to go on and he's going to talk about it in just a few moments when he talks about uh, Onesiphorus and he's going to talk about uh, Timothy himself. But he already talked about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Hang on to that word entrust. We just talked about it in chapter 2, verse 22. 222 principle. What did he say? He said, I've entrusted. You entrust it to faithful men. What's this whole entrust thing? He even talks about, again, it being entrusted to Timothy later on in verse 14. Entrusted it to you. This concept of entrusting, making a valuable deposit into someone's life. When you think about that for just a moment, I reminded of a, of a time whenever I uh, went to Paris and was in Paris for just like an extra day and, and was able to make it to the Louvre. And man, it was most incredible. I love history and I can appreciate art history and how it all fits together and tells a story. And so I started out at the beginning of time and I made my way to the, to the finks and the, the mummies and, the, and, and just enjoyed looking at all of that in the Old Testament history time, and then I made my way to the New Testament and saw these statues of these various people. But then I looked at my watch, and in 30 minutes till it closed, and I was only in like 100 or 200 AD. I had to make it to the 1500s. And I had to make it to the 1500s because the number one piece of art that everyone goes to the Louvre for, the number one museum of art, the number one piece of art in that museum that everyone goes to is what? The Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci's, arguably the best piece of art that he has. When you get into this room, you're underwhelmed. I warn you, it's not as big as you think it's going to be. I guess it's good art. I don't really, I'm not an art guy, but I guess it's good art. But notice this, it's a bulletproof glass in front of it. You have to stand back so far from it. You know, this is the most valuable piece of art in the most valuable uh, museum in the world. It has only been on exhibition two times outside of that museum. Can you imagine the responsibility of those hourly employees taking the Mona Lisa from wherever to wherever? And the, the, the task that they had entrusted to them. Can you imagine getting the Mona Lisa saying, you know what, she's pretty drab. Maybe we can put a smile on her. Maybe while we got her out, we can clean her up a little bit. Maybe put some color behind her. You know, they could, you, could, you could do that and then you could take the Mona Lisa and put it on display. But is that what they were tasked with? No. They were entrusted with the Mona Lisa to take it just as the Mona Lisa is, to put it on display and to bring it back. 
and put it behind the bulletproof vest, behind the bulletproof glass. That is what they were entrusted to do. Listen, I'm not going to stand on the stage and try to make Jesus look better today. It's not my job to improve and make Jesus more relevant today. I just want you to know God. I just want you to know God. Because I think when you know God, when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it will change you for all eternity. And you will see people differently, and you will love people differently. And not only will you love people differently, and when you know God, and when you love people, but you will also say, hey, I've got something entrusted to me. I need to entrust it to faithful other people who don't know Jesus. I need to live sent. And I can tell you this. We exist at Graceful Church, not for some trite statement, because we want to help people know God, help people love people, and help people live sent. And if you want to be a part of that, start with this. Do you know God? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that, that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. If you've never trusted your life to Jesus, again, we can do band good, we can do TED Talks good, we can do a lot of things good, but if we don't get Jesus center stage, everything else is bad. Do you know Jesus today? Give yourself to him. Father God, bow your heads with me. Father God, in this space, in this time, would you just speak to each individual heart that they may know you, that they may walk in you, that they may love people like never before. Lord, that they will live sent into this world as an honor to be a disciple who makes disciples, who's been entrusted with not a beautiful piece of art, but with a beautiful Savior and has been told empowered, given authority to go out and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He's gone and told to go make disciples. Father, help us to live out, surrender ourselves away from our own agendas and help us to be a church knows God, that loves people, and that truly lives sin, surrendering our lives to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live sent.